from the Centre for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Hello and welcome to this episode of the CER podcast. I'm Beth Oppenheim, a researcher here at the CER. And today I'm with Sam Lowe, who's a senior research fellow here at the CER. And we're in the heart of Westminster, where the Brexit mayhem has been unfolding over the past few days. Hi, Sam. Hi. So this is coming to listeners slightly earlier than usual because we wanted to respond to the government's Brexit white paper, which came out today, Thursday, and the scenes that were unfolding over the weekend. So we've waved goodbye to Davis and Boris for now. The government's white paper has finally been published and it proposes what looks like or sounds like an association agreement, meaning it goes beyond trade and economics and incorporates other elements of cooperation like foreign security and defence policy. So let's start with the economics. The proposed economic partnership would treat goods and services differently. And uh, we've discussed this on the podcast before because, strangely enough, the CEO or you and John proposed this model in January, calling it the Jersey option. Could you just remind listeners what this involves? So essentially what the government has proposed is that the UK remains in the single market for goods and in a customs union. The government calls this something else because it's specifically saying it wants to be a customs union with the ability to also run a dual tariff regime at the border so that the UK can strike its own free trade agreements. So if, for example, a product was destined for the UK, it would be levied with the UK's import tariff, whatever level that is. But if the product was destined for the EU, eventually the tariff would be levied at the EU rate. There's some difference there in the possibility to diverge in future. But importantly, in the paper, it says that this is something that will happen once the systems come into place. So in the short to medium term, we're talking single market for goods and customs union, which would allow goods trade between the UK and the EU27 to continue as it does now. It would allow UK manufacturers that are component parts of pan-European supply chains to stay there. There would be no need for checks at the border. There would be no need for inspections on the basis of safety or the like. So it would keep goods flowing as they do now. However, on services, we would diverge. We would no longer be part of the single market for services. This would come with new barriers to trade between the EU and the UK, but it would allow the UK to regulate as it sees fit and potentially strike agreements with the rest of the world on services. Can you just quickly say how this addresses the Irish issue, this plan? So so in theory, this plan means that British goods remain in, in free circulation across the EU. So there's no need for customs checks at the border. There's no need for safety inspections, none of that. You wouldn't need any physical infrastructure at a border. So you wouldn't need new checks at Calais, but you also wouldn't need new checks on the Irish land border. Yeah. Essentially, what has been put forward is quite close to what the Commission has proposed for the backstop, the insurance policy, specifically for Northern Ireland, in order to obviate the need for checks there. And this is a more fleshed out version of that, but for the whole UK, and with caveats in that the UK wants to be willing to diverge on, say, tariffs in the future or potentially on regulations in some areas. Great. And can you explain a little bit more about what this customs regime looks like? So you explained it's a dual customs regime. Yeah. And there's this whole business about the UK now collecting tariffs on the EU's behalf. So could you just explain a bit about so, that? So this, this has changed a lot over time because we've sort of heard different iterations of it from government. What the government is proposing is that the UK would continue to collect EU tariffs on the EU's behalf for goods that eventually end up in the EU and that it would also collect tariffs on the UK's behalf if those goods eventually end up in the UK. To begin with, our external tariffs will be the same as the EU, so that's not a problem. However, over time, they might diverge. The UK might strike a new agreement with, say, the US, 
and then goods that are imported from the US to the UK would be subject to a lower duty rate. But in order to protect the integrity of the EU's customs union and avoid the need for rules of origin checks between the UK and the EU, what the UK is proposing is twofold. First, it's going to introduce a new trader scheme, which would mean that for those companies that are trusted, they will be able to declare at the border whether the goods they're importing will end up in the EU ultimately or the UK, and dependent on what they say, they will pay either the UK tariff rate or the EU rate. Got it. So that's just for, for companies that are trusted. Yeah. This is a new scheme. This has sort of come out of nowhere, so we don't actually know what this would look like yet. So for the companies that don't qualify for this scheme, they would import the goods from the US. The tariff that would be levied would be the higher rate, which is presumed to be the EU rate under this model. Then if the company wants to claim the UK rate, it would have to prove that it sold this good into the UK. And upon proof of sale, it could claim back from HMRC the difference. This is the so-called rebate, isn't it? So this, is, this would be sort yeah. of a rebate scheme, but this is envisioned only to impact a small number of importers because these okay. would be ones who can't qualify for this other scheme. And this is all a bit too clever by half, I think, but it's designed to allow the UK to reap all the benefits of a customs union whilst also being able to run a fully independent trade policy. Yep, so so critics on both sides really are arguing that this is sort of a customs union in disguise. Brexiteers aren't happy because they say that the UK won't have autonomy over customs policy. And Remainers aren't happy because, as you've said, too clever by half. It sounds like it might be overly complex and ultimately an inferior version of the customs union. What do you think? Does it seem like a remotely sensible way out of this trade-off we're facing between economic ties and sovereignty? I mean, it's quite a clever proposal. You can see the UK has actually put quite a lot of thought into it. But unfortunately for the UK, the EU is just not going to agree to something like this. And I think the levers are probably more right on this in that it probably is, and is, to my mind, a stalking horse for just accepting a customs union. Yeah. Because the EU's already said it will reject such a model. It'll have lots of questions about how this could work. There'd be fears of essentially cheap imports into the UK being used in products that then get exported to the rest of the EU and in free circulation undercutting manufacturers in other EU 27 member states and there's also questions about how the tariff revenue is actually divvied up and the UK said that we'll agree a formula but they haven't really said what that is so the EU will reject this but it could be seen as the opening salvo in a negotiation that will eventually lead to the UK just accepting we're in a customs union which most businesses in the UK would like and actually is something that the EU is willing to discuss but Saying that, theoretically, if this proposal were to work, then, yeah, the UK would still be able to negotiate on tariffs with other countries. There's obviously complexities as to how the importer actually reaps the benefits of those trade agreements, because depending on whether it's in this new trader scheme, which you would have to qualify for, or if it's not, it has to do a rebate upon proof of sale. So there's admin that comes with it. But, you know, theoretically, it could work. It's just, it's just I think it's probably dead on arrival when it lands on Mr Barnier's desk. Yeah, okay. And so this brings me on to the next point, which is that Barnier has also rejected the idea of this single market style access for goods without services and without freedom of movement. And the white paper is saying that absolutely freedom of movement is going to end. So is the checkers plan just British naval gazing or does it have any chance of being accepted by the EU? So I think... This is where the UK really does face some difficulties because my feeling is on the, the new customs partnership or facilitated customs arrangement. I, I, I think that's what, what they're calling it. Yeah. Calling it now. My feeling is on that, that maybe the EU will actually enter into discussion on that because there's a feeling it might just end up being a customs union and they're happy to negotiate it. When it comes to single market for goods, 
the EU has repeatedly indicated that this isn't something that it's going to allow. It's, it's repeatedly stated the indivisibility of the four freedoms, a sort of a fundamental principle of the European Union. And I think that will hold. Whilst the EU has in the past allowed for the four freedoms to be treated distinctly in the case of, say, Switzerland. Or Ukraine. Or Ukraine. Well, Ukraine more theoretical than in practice mm. because it hasn't actually achieved much of that yet. But it generally tends to do that in self-interest, mm. right? And there's not really much self-interest in this scenario? It's self-interest, but it's, it's also you need to look at the context. So say with Switzerland, the relationship between Switzerland and the EU developed in parallel to the development of the single market. So it was actually something that grew over time. The starting point wasn't the single market existed and, and Switzerland took a piece of it. It was all considered part of a convergence track, and that's not the case here. And, and when people point to Switzerland, the thing that needs to be remembered is the EU really doesn't like the Swiss relationship, and it's in no mind to replicate it. I think the bigger problem for the UK in this is actually the international political climate at the moment and also the climate within the EU where there are perceived threats to the EU's legal order and, and understanding of the international legal order coming from all over. Externally you have Trump, internally you have issues in Poland, in Hungary, you have issues in Italy that all pose a threat to essentially the continued existence of the EU or at least could be perceived to. And in that moment and in this moment it becomes quite difficult for the EU to accept an agreement that would fundamentally challenge this understanding or to grant the UK an agreement that actually says our stated principles aren't all that, we're not really that bound by them. And beyond that, there's also an issue whereby politicians in, say, France, so say Macron, could look at this arrangement and worry that actually single market for goods, not services, customs union, that's something that Eurosceptics in their own country might seize upon and say, mm -hmm. look, we could have an arrangement that sorts out manufacturing, it'd be fine, the economic hit wouldn't be so bad. And we could actually, you know, seek that as a reason to justify sort of moving away from the EU. And I just don't think that's something that the EU can allow, but neither could say Macron in France. And what about the argument that the UK economy is going to be punished quite severely by no longer having the access to services that it once did? I think the UK economy is 80% comprised of services. Will that have any traction or do you think this is just a really fundamental principle that the EU just is not going to budge on? I think you know it has traction insofar as the UK is still being punished so great if that's if that's what you want to achieve but I'm not sure that's necessarily what the but EU, in the, EU it is hoping it, to achieve. It would no longer look so appealing to Eurosceptics. Yeah, it no longer looks so appealing, maybe, but then services are quite intangible. People mm. find it hard to comprehend what it means to them and their lives, especially when it comes to services traded across borders. I think it's more fundamental, and I think especially if the UK isn't willing to budge on freedom of movement, there is no way the EU can offer this deal to the UK, because if the UK doesn't budge on freedom of movement and was granted this deal, it would actually create problems between, say, the EU and Switzerland, because this agreement would look similar to the Swiss agreement, but the Swiss are required to have freedom of movement, something that is occasionally controversial within Switzerland. And the Swiss could then quite legitimately say, well, we want the same thing. And then the external relations of the EU start to unravel as well. And the gestures towards some degree of preference for EU nationals in this white paper, is that going to go far enough or not? The offer of a preferential migration scheme could help. 
in negotiations i don't know it's, i think it's probably expected but the white paper is a bit ambiguous as to what this looks like so it's, it feels that the uk is still holding its cards close to its test as to exactly what this looks like whether it'll be an eu specific preferential migration scheme or it'll be a scheme that's potentially open to other trading partners as well there's also in the white paper it's interesting that they talk about mode four services quite a lot which is the temporary movement of a person to deliver a service say for a period of a couple of years three years often within a company and they talk about in the white paper up specific liberalisation of, say, Mode 4 visas in given sectors. So I wonder if that's one of the ways the UK will try to get around saying there's a preferential migration scheme for Europeans whilst in the sectoral annexes on services actually opening up lots of visas, say, for financial services or for business services or the like. But we shall see. We will see. And then my last question really is to move on to the political realm, which is what a lot of people have been focusing on, particularly over the weekend. It's very volatile at the moment. We've lost two cabinet ministers over the space of two days. What do you think? Are we going to lose more? And what are the chances, say, of a vote of no confidence in May? And what about of a general election? (laughs) No, will we see more resignations in the few, next few days? Maybe they've been threatened, it's, but it's quite difficult to see how May gets toppled because whilst the ERG and the sort of hard Brexit Explain rebels, who the ERG are. so so the European Research Group, which is the name given to the hard Brexit rebels who want to extricate themselves fully from Market European Co. European influence, so as to pursue. And new opportunities elsewhere yeah. so Jacob Rees-Mogg and co whilst they clearly have the numbers to call a leadership election it seems quite unlikely that they have the numbers to win one and if they were to call this leadership election and lose then they would have to wait another 12 months before they could call one again under conservative internal rules so it's difficult to see how May goes it's also quite difficult to see how she gets through anything she wants so you're just in this essential era of perpetual standoff where nothing can be decided and I think that's problematic. I think the hope with this proposal was that even if the EU reject it, the hope was that the EU wouldn't reject it outright and would actually be considerate and consider it and that could potentially buy some political space for Theresa May to get the withdrawal agreement over the line. Because the thing that needs to be remembered about this entire proposal is that it's our aspirations for the future relationship but that future relationship won't be negotiated until after we've left. It'll be negotiated during the transition. So actually nothing that's talked about now is binding on the future relationship. The only thing that's binding once we've left is what's agreed in the withdrawal agreement and what's left to be agreed is the Irish backstop and the governance procedures for the withdrawal agreement. And if this proposal gives Theresa May the political cover she needs to be able to accept, for example, a Northern Irish-specific backstop, then maybe there's some use on both sides in just letting this hang in the air for a while. Because as is indicated in the white paper itself... The line would be, we can accept this backstop because we would never need to use it because the, f- the future relationship we've laid out would deal with Ireland. So maybe on the EU side, there's going to be some reluctance to kill this plan immediately just to give her that space. But we'll see. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Sam, for helping us wade through Thank you. This. I think I'm starting to lose my voice. <laughs> <laughs> you lost it. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for listening to the CEA podcast and thanks to Beth Oppenheim, our editor. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud and follow us on Twitter, CEA underscore EU.